from Wyoming Public Media. This, this, this is this is spoken 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 words spoken words. This is spoken words. I'm Micah Schweitzer. Right under the surface of everywhere you go in in that area, you know, people's stories and people's uh, pain and people's grievous errors are are right there with you. And in some ways, you know, this is my perception, admittedly, but I I, I felt like there has been a kind of effort to quarantine that off. In this episode, we hear from Kevin Powers about his new novel, A Shout in the Ruins. Powers was born and raised in Richmond, Virginia. He's a former soldier who served with the U.S. Army in Iraq, and he went on to receive an MFA in poetry from the Michener Center for Writers at the University of Texas at Austin. He published a collection of poetry titled Letter Composed During a Lull in the Fighting, and his debut novel, The Yellow Birds, won the Guardian First Book Award and the Penn Hemingway Award and was a finalist for the National Book Award. In his new novel, A Shout in the Ruins, Powers brings readers to his native Virginia to examine what happens to several people connected to one plantation house, and not just in the moment when it was an active plantation before and during the Civil War, but also tracing their lives up to the 1980s. One of the major characters who's associated indirectly with this plantation is a man named Bob Reed, who finds himself fighting in the Civil War on the Confederate side. Bob Reed lost his right arm in the Battle of Mechanicsville in June of 62. He had been a soldier in the Virginia Volunteer Dragoons for less than a year when he found himself lying just above the swampy waterline of Beaver Dam Creek, conversing with an enemy soldier, a Pennsylvanian named Ernst Drums, who had happened to fall close to, and soon after, Bob. He could not remember exactly what had happened to him, only that he had lost a shoe in deep mud somewhere between crossing the waist-high creek and running through the tall grass toward the federal lines, and had awoken some hours later, assuming that he had been killed. He mistook life for death on account of a curious illusion. The sun was still out when he opened his eyes. All around him the world buzzed, and there was one tree standing by itself in the green meadow between the trenches, and the sound of the creek flowed in and out of the terrible hum in his head. It seemed to him that he had been deposited into Eden, or if not Eden, then he was getting a look at it before he got there. He could even see his body a few feet away from him, if we measure using distances occurring in the corporeal world, and he imagined passing away from it, not in ascension, but still, a definite movement away, that he could be sure of. In actual fact, the out-of-body experience he thought he had was only Bob's mind attempting to incorporate new information into its understanding of the world. The arm, which he had accurately identified as being the one to which his mind had always been previously married, was in reality no longer a part of his entire body. He had made the mistake of seeing his hand the sleeve of his uniform, the unique arrangement of hair along the knuckles and above his wrist, and assuming, understandably we might grant, that because it was oriented with the fingers pointing toward him and from several feet away, in a manner he would sometimes think of as accusatory later in his life, that the rest of his body was still attached somewhere deeper into the grass beyond his ability to see, that his eyes ought to be looking out from and not into the wall of waving wild rye 
that hid whatever it was that existed beyond the elbow of his uniform. He fixated on that spot in the tangle of bunch grass for a while. Sensation returned, though slowly. Nausea overtook him in the evening, and he spent a while vomiting onto his own shoulder, discovering that movement had become a difficult proposition. He almost choked on it once or twice, and he found it necessary to spit with all his might to keep from having these acidic expulsions return to fill his mouth and nose. His throat burned, thirst returned, the sun fell beyond the trees, the sky darkened, hiding smoke on the wind from the chimney fires of nearby farms. Before full dark, Bob thought he recognized a pattern on the blades of grass, darkness on darkness, the night had a face. It knelt on his chest. Its weight pushed him deeper into the mud. Before it, he felt only fear, as though his entire being had become a conduit for that one state. Distinctions fell away. He saw where he had been before his birth, the darkness there, too, a void broken only by spirals of color, a vastness so great as to be meaningless. The being he had not yet become spun through it helplessly. He sat bolt upright, spat from the paralyzed terror of the void, back into a simple, remorseless summer night on earth. His breathing was out of control, shallow and quick. He tried to raise himself up out of the mud only to collapse back into it, face first. The world became pain. Pain became the world. He sang an irreproducible song. Kevin Powers is from the area he fictionalizes in the novel, and that, combined with his experience of war, shaped the central questions he wanted to explore in this story. There are sort of two parallel concerns that overlap somehow for me. Maybe they're not parallel, but um, they cross, they, are, they run next to each other, they're, uh, they overlap. One of it is being a native of, of Virginia, particularly R Richmond, Virginia, which, as I'm sure you will know, was uh, the capital of the Confederacy during the Civil War, was an important part of our country's terrible historical legacy, slavery, treatment of, of black people. But along with that, having had the experiences that informed my first novel of, of going to war, of seeing what that kind of violence on a you know such a, a a wide scale does to not just individuals but to communities not just the people who witness it but the victims and and even in some way the perpetrators you know i came home with a desire to re-examine where i was from what kind of baggage do i bring with me as a virginian when i when i go out into the world what's present in that history that i don't see and so what i really wanted to do was try to connect that past, that legacy to the present in a way that felt as real as it is. You know what I mean? It's definitely that connection is there, but, but also something that could maybe communicate that connectedness to, to a reader who might happen to pick up the book. He describes the history there as having worked its way up through the ground, present in the cemeteries and ruins and in the statues and monuments that have been the subject of so much public controversy of late. But, he adds, it's a history that is resistant to the attempts by the larger society to bury that history. Right under the surface of everywhere you go in, in that area, 
you know, people's stories and people's uh, pain and people's grievous errors are, are right there with you. And in some ways, you know, this is my perception admittedly, but I, I, I felt like there has been a kind of effort to quarantine that off, to acknowledge that it happened, but to try to draw a bright line between that history and the present. And it, it's just really hard to feel like it's not there with you when you're walking around. And so this place in the book, Beauvais Tobacco Plantation, is, I guess, the location for, for me to attempt to sift through all those questions to as a place to anchor that line. And if I can, if I'm able, it was my attempt anyway, to pull that line into the present so we can see how it's unbroken. How even when there is change, it's very often, you know, kind of transformation of the same efforts and intentions, uh, the same social forces at work. Yeah, so I mean, I think when you're when you're from a place, you know, obviously every place has history, but when you're from a place whose relationship to its own history is is as fraught or potentially as fraught as many places in the South, it stays with you. And I don't know, my hope is that I'm kind of mature enough as a man and maybe mature enough as a writer that people might find my sort of attempts to explore this history uh, valuable and useful. A Shout in the Ruins is a novel, a work of fiction, and Powers hopes this literary lens will offer readers a perspective they might not get from a history book. This is not a deficiency, and I don't mean to, to criticize history or the study of history. I, I love history. I find history absolutely necessary for my understanding of the world. But there are times when looking at a period from the level at which history often examines a period, you know, from the top, from the movement of sort of forces and markets and that kind of thing, you are left with the question of what was it like for the individual going through this experience? What was the dynamic? What kinds of complexities arose in that? And, and you know, I think that's one of the things that fiction can do if, you know, if done well is, is illuminate the lives as lived, you know, and, and of course it's an approximation. But, you know, some of the things that you discover, you know, just as an example, uh, one of the places that's featured sort of tangentially in the book, but it's there, a place called the Devil's Half Acre, Lumpkin's Jail, which is a very real place in Richmond, Virginia, uh, essentially a, a slave trading facility. And in my research, I came across this guy's obituary. And one would not conclude from this guy's obituary that he was what I would consider to be a reprehensible, re repugnant human being. One would con conclude, rather, that he was a pillar of the community, a businessman. And, and, and so to get that kind of context of the way that people talked about these things in the present, I don't know, I guess in a way I'm happy that, that, I, that I was shocked, even after having spent a lot of time immersed in, in research for for the book, you know, it was still shocking to see that this guy whose life was essentially funded on the suffering of other people was was um, given even the barest modicum of respect was really alarming, you know. And so you want, at least for me, like what I want to do is make sure the book feels alarming to people who maybe only have that history from you know a high school history class or something like that. 
Powers admits the search for answers often produces more questions, as it did for him, but he does hope this book will prompt readers to embrace history in all its complexity, so that in seeing the past more clearly and in seeking to understand others, we'll have a reason to hope for the future. You know, I, I, I certainly don't claim that I have the answer to any of these, these issues um, as they manifested historically or as they're still ongoing today, but I think the one thing that I'm sure of is that honesty is going to be required as a precondition of reaching any kind of answers that we may be able to find. You know, just in terms of recognizing ourselves in another, that's one of the great things that literature can do. My hope is that maybe this book will allow people to do that. You know, and, and I guess the other thing is, uh, as it could possibly be, applicable to to other people in other areas um, in the present rather than just people interested in the past is you know a kind of optimism that I feel but that I'm wary about relying on my instincts are towards optimism my my innate setting I think is to believe in people but I want to make sure that that optimism that hope is tested you know and tested meaningfully against the experiences of other people, that I'm not looking narrowly at, at the world, that I'm not approaching subjects with rose-colored glasses, as it were. I, I hope one of the things that maybe people will take away from it, if I've done my job convincingly, is that in spite of all, all of this history, that there is a way to move forward. I, I hope that's the case. I mean, that's my belief. If there is a large thesis for the book, I suppose that's it. I tried not to romanticize anything in the book so that the test of that optimis optimism would be would be earned. You know what I mean? That uh, that if I was able to retain any of it, that it would be something that I really put up against all the reasons not to feel that way. And um, that's something that I hope people will conclude the book feeling, that they've had a chance to look at not just who we are, but also where we come from in a real clear-eyed way, and that they will conclude, as I did, that by being honest, we can somehow move forward uh, together. This episode was produced by Teo Basquia. I'm Micah Schweitzer. If you have a moment, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes so other people can find the show or share a favorite episode with a friend. Spoken Words is a collaboration between the University of Wyoming's MFA in Creative Writing program and Wyoming Public Media.